Today from the Global Lane, U.S. troops leave Afghanistan. The consequences for Israel and the Middle East. When the U.S. is strong, Israel is strong. And when the perception is that the U.S. is getting weaker, we are weaker. Back on the home front, another battle for those who served in Afghanistan. A lot of veterans are looking at this and thinking, oh my goodness, my service was in vain. Healthcare costs rising. Time for the great American breakup. Breaking up with that costly system and giving Americans choice. Left behind in Afghanistan, will anyone be held accountable? And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Consequences of a hasty withdrawal. Now that U.S. troops are out of Afghanistan, what does the future hold for Israel and the Middle East? Well, joining us is Israel's representative at the United Nations, Ambassador Danny Donon. Ambassador Donon, it's good to talk with you again. So an emboldened Taliban now in control in Afghanistan. What does that mean for Israel? For us, when the U.S. is strong, Israel is strong. And when the perception is that the U.S. is getting weaker, we are weaker. Those pictures that we saw coming from Kabul are actually giving more strength to the radicals in Lebanon, to the radicals in Gaza, and to the radicals in Tehran. And I think the question is whether the new administration will now continue to negotiate with Tehran and will try to re-enter the agreement with Iran all over again. And many other Islamic terrorist groups see that the most powerful military in the world was defeated and embarrassed by the enemy they fought against for 20 years. The Taliban's now in control. So how about the terrorist group on Israel's northern border? Let's talk about Hezbollah first. Do you expect them to make a move, or are they too weak financially and politically to attack Israel right now? So the, the issue is the perception of strength and power. You know, I served as deputy minister of defense, and I learned that it's not about the real strengths you have, about the number of tanks or submarines. It's about the perception. And I think today the perception that the U.S. is weaker. And those people sitting in Beirut, the heads of Hezbollah, they know that we will retaliate. We will attack them. And I think they know it very seriously. So they will think twice before challenging the, the IDF. And also in, politically, they know that the people in Lebanon will blame them for, for the consequences. So I don't know what will happen. And also, you have to understand that the people in Hezbollah in Beirut don't decide. They get orders from uh, Tehran. So the radicals in Tehran will decide when the next conflict will be here in the north. Well, that's, that's the big concern, is it not, uh, what Iran is, is going to do? And I know your prime minister, uh, Naftali Bennett, recently met with President Biden at the White House, and Biden said he will not allow Iran to possess a nuclear weapon on his watch. But how can Israel trust his word on that, given that many of America's allies feel abandoned? They feel let down by the hasty withdrawal from Afghanistan. Can you depend on his word? We have to trust ourselves. History has taught us that uh, we have to be the ones securing uh, our future and our well-being. Uh, and I think we have a reason to worry, because uh, the new administration actually acknowledged that they are willing, they are eager to uh, sign a deal with the administration in Tehran. I don't know why, uh, but now the only reason that we don't have agreement is because the leadership in Tehran are not willing to negotiate with the U.S. 
I hope it will stay that situation because the last thing we want is a is another bad agreement that will allow Iran to become nuclear, uh, allow them to send uh, their proxies, uh, weapons, and uh, funding. We don't want to see it uh, becoming a reality. Many Americans believe Israel may be forced to act alone against Iranian nuclear weapons. Uh, Prime Minister Bennett suggested that Israel will take steps against the Islamic Republic a little bit at a time. So how could you stop them without U.S. military backing and support? Don't you need that? We have the capability to defend ourselves. Uh, and if we will have no choice, we will do it ourselves. We did it in the past. I want to remind you when we destroyed the nuclear reactor in Iraq, the nuclear reactor in Syria. Uh, we hope it will not be the case that it will be only Israel against the radicals of Iran. But if nothing will uh, stop them, we will be there to stop them. And in Israel, Defense Secretary Benny Gantz recently met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, and he made offers of financial assistance to the PA. So what and who's behind that offer? So uh, we have some kind of a, a dialogue with the PA. Uh, you know, when I, we were in uh, government, uh, we made sure that uh, it will not be in the highest levels, because we have to remember that uh, President Abbas still supports terrorism. They pay salaries to convicted terrorists, and I don't think he deserves the respect he got from uh, Minister Gantz. Uh, that's the decision of the new government here in Israel, uh, and, and I think we should coordinate few things with the PA, but we should not uh, give the respect uh, to Abbas while he supports terrorism. Do you think this is designed to kind of uh, negate uh, Hamas and kind of get them out of the picture and get more Palestinians to support the PA, or what's behind that? No, I, I think, you know, there are issues to coordinate uh, with the PA. Maybe there were pressure coming from the new administration. One cannot ignore that the meeting between the defense minister and Abbas took place a few hours after Prime Minister Netanyahu came back from Washington. And I'm sure this issue was also brought up in the discussions between President Biden and Prime Minister Bennett. So do you think it helps or weakens Israel negotiating with the PA? I don't think you should give uh, negotiate directly with the president of the PA. Uh, I think uh, you should not give them the legitimacy. Uh, we should demand them to stop sponsoring terrorism. Uh, and if we need to coordinate a few issues, we you know we have professionals on the ground who can do that. Well, we know the high holy days are coming on shortly in Israel, and all of our viewers will be praying for you and praying for Israel, uh, and we always pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Ambassador Danny Danon, Israel's representative to the United Nations, thank you for sharing your time and your insights with us. Shalom. Shalom, shalom. After nearly 20 years, the U.S. military completed its exit from Afghanistan this week. The commander of the 82nd Airborne, Army Major General Chris Donahue, was the last American soldier out. Much attention has been placed on the evacuation of Americans and Afghans, but what about the U.S. soldiers returning home from Afghanistan and the veterans who served there for over more than two decades? What about them? Well, here with more is Steele Brand. He's Associate Professor of History at the King's College. Mr. Brand is a U.S. Army veteran who served in Afghanistan as a tactical intelligence officer. So, Steele, U.S. military involvement is done, at least for now. So how hard is it on those troops returning home, especially those who survived Afghanistan when 2,231 of their brothers-in-arms did not? 
Well, first of all, thanks a lot for having me on the show. Uh, you know, if you look at what has happened, there's this rapid turnaround, a, a dramatic swing of military fortune that has just occurred. A success that was highly imperfect, but easy to hold with a small number of troops, minimal commitments, and a diplomatic corps has now turned into an absolute failure. I mean, there's no other way to look at it than a failure. We've broken our promises to the Afghans. Uh, Biden broke his promises to uh, to us and the Afghans. It was not safe and orderly. People have been left behind. And now we don't even have diplomatic personnel uh, in the country. So I think a lot of veterans are looking at this and thinking, oh my goodness, my service was in vain. Uh, everything I've done, the, the lives that I saw that were lost, my buddies who are no longer here, the wounds uh, that I will always carry with me, and not just uh, physical, but also emotional, all of these things feel like they were sacrifices that uh, were worthless. These veterans need to be reminded that their work was not in vain. They represented a series of virtues that are indispensable to a proper functioning republic. Discipline, um, uh, loyalty, trust, courage, self-sacrifice, serving your country. These vets did that for 20 years. Whether we win, whether we lose, that is good, period. Yeah, they did a great job. So what effect do you think it would have on the troops of American political and military leaders were to be held accountable for the way the withdrawal was conducted. Yeah, I mean, this needs to happen. There, there needs to be a reckoning that comes both in the midterm and then in the presidential election in three years. Uh, it, Americans, I think, need to look at what are the values that we've tried to uh, influence other people to adopt abroad, sometimes unsuccessfully, uh, but th there are these good values, and I mentioned them, religious liberty, constitutional government, human dignity, and then what are the virtues that are needed to actually push those values through? And those are the things that I think our vets know very well. They're trained to do them. They're trained to honor the flag. They're trained to do their job, even if they feel like uh, their leaders at that moment aren't doing what's best for them. They're trained to do what they can do to fulfill their duty. And they're trained to keep their word, to have trust, uh, to be trustworthy. I mean, these are things that we need to demand of our leadership. It's not just about bad strategic choices. It's about a failure of principles. It's about a failure of morals that has occurred at the national level. And, and it seems like it just keeps happening and happening. You're a history professor at the King's College, so let's look back. It seems since uh, the Korean War, ever since the Korean War, actually, the United States never really goes into war and then wins it. Truman wouldn't well, let General MacArthur push the Chinese back across the Yalu River shortly after troops were pulled from Vietnam. The communists moved into Saigon, then seized control, and matters got worse in the region. Remember, the Khmer Rouge came to power in Cambodia. Two million people died, and then Desert Storm. Many of our troops wanted to chase Saddam all the way back to Baghdad, and the U.S. withdrew. And then we returned a decade later, and then we withdrew again from Iraq. ISIS came to power, killing tens of thousands and establishing a caliphate in Syria. And now the Taliban take over Afghanistan. Why does this keep happening? You've got two totally incompatible uh, ideas. One is that America, from its founding, is anti-colonial. It opposes uh, sort of occupation and empire, okay? And you know there are merits to that. But then there's this other desire, and that is to spread democracy. And George W. Bush's idea was spread it through building up nations. That's a really tricky thing to do. There may be kind of a reason to try it, but when you put those two together, 
it, that's what creates what we've had since the Cold War. Uh, the average per when I was in Afghanistan, what the number one lesson I learned in 2012 was I can't control everything. There are things that are just way beyond my capacity to direct. And I was in the know. I was a tactical intelligence officer. But what I did realize is I can do my job. And that is what we need average citizens to try to do at home. We need to bring these values and we need to practice them on the home front. We need to be loyal to our neighbors. That's a military virtue applied to everyone. We need to speak the truth. We need to serve other people and be willing to sacrifice for them. And we also need to be able to serve our country. But if we emphasize civic vices, the kinds of things that we've been doing right now with our top leadership and the United States, America is not going to succeed uh, militarily or even domestically. And that's what we've seen the last two years. But instead of we emphasize civic virtues, the kinds of things I've been talking about, every single citizen doing that, and then demand that of our leadership, that's when we can see us picking the right path to go where we want to go. And thank those veterans, those soldiers returning home for their doing their duty. Okay, Steele Brand, Associate Professor of History at the King's College. Thanks for providing those insights. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Healthcare costs are squeezing American pocketbooks. Today, the average American is paying nearly $500 per month for health insurance. And rising costs for hospitalizations, surgeries, and catastrophic illnesses are causing many people to turn to bankruptcy as their only way out. But there are some alternatives. Here with more is Avilio Silvera, Vice President of Communications and Government Affairs of Christian Care Ministry. Avilio, thank you for being with us. So what's happened to health care costs and insurance since the implementation of the Affordable Care Act? Well... Affordable Care Act, Gary, was meant to provide a standard basis of health care coverage to all Americans for whosoever. Unfortunately, when you have a government subsidized, one size fits all approach to health care, the opposite historically tends to happen. And while we've seen so many negative headlines during COVID, there is a silver lining breaking up with that costly system and giving Americans choice choice for individual decisions to control costs, alternatives like direct primary care, health care sharing, and others that have been 50% less expensive than traditional health insurance in the marketplace. So I, I want to talk about that in a minute, but you know, we were told that costs would be lower and health care would be better for Americans uh, with Obamacare. What happened? Well, you have um, what I like to call the health insurance cartel. This is the big names that spent over $1 billion last year alone lobbying our elected officials. And so in order to get big pharma on board with Obamacare and the ACA, you have to have some carve outs and some benefits for them in order to have the hospital networks and the specialty providers to come on board with this government mandated controlled health care. You have to have some carve outs and some benefits for them. And so what we have is so many different layers to medical costs versus 
an actual decision being made by a physician with their patient and the cost being driven by market forces. That's why cash pay programs and direct care programs are so much more less are so much less expensive than traditional health care. And anytime economists will tell you, Gary, that you subsidize something, the cost becomes inflated and increases versus being managed and controlled. Well, uh, you had mentioned that the COVID pandemic has certainly changed our society. Many people changing careers, small businesses have actually shut their doors because they just can't afford the rising labor costs. And then state budgets are being squeezed by expanded Medicaid coverage. So tell us a little bit about MediShare and cost sharing as an alternative. Tell us a little more about that. You know, so many people in this, what they, uh, what some economists has talked about as the great resignation, you know, they were, many of them were working from home, uh, reprioritize how they wanted to do life. They liked being home. They liked caring for, for parents and for children. And they started seeing that they had other opportunities. And so where you had forced bankruptcy in businesses that shuttered because of the pandemic and these, these lockdowns and shutdowns, you also have a rising group as, as high as 40%, some surveys say, of individuals saying, you know, I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to do my own type of work. I'm going to reset my priorities. And they've gotten stuck in this healthcare purgatory where they have to choose between pursuing their dreams of of a new business or finding a new career path and being you know locked into employer mandated health care and it's that rising cost I, I was speaking to a couple just last weekend um, he's about to uh, retire actually considering early retirement at 62 and he wants to pursue a business with his wife yet even with advanced subsidies for ACA plans, the out-of-pocket expense was astronomical. And so the alternative that he's sought out and that so many have sought out over the last 27 years is medical cost sharing or healthcare sharing ministries, where like-minded individuals, in the case of MediShare, like-minded Christians come together to live out the book of Acts in medical cost sharing, in sharing each other's burden. Last year alone, sharing over $1 billion in medical costs. But there's other alternatives as well, Gary, like direct primary care, which is a, a throwback to the old family doctor. You go to see your primary care physician and you pay a monthly fee, you can go as many times as you want. Cash pay services for things like imaging and, and specialty. And what so many have found is that their out-of-pocket costs are dramatically lower because they're in control of making the decision on what they spend and how they spend it versus all the layers of bureaucracy between the pharmaceuticals, the provider, the, the health insurance companies themselves. There are so many layers, one on top of the other, that it does put people in a situation like they don't have a choice, but they very well do. Okay, giving people choices on their health care. Avilio Silvera, Vice President of Communications and Government Affairs of Christian Care Ministry. Thank you, Avilio, for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Gary. Only hours after the United States military concluded its withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Taliban and their supporters were out in the streets holding a mock funeral for the United States, Britain, and France. After 20 years, the Taliban are claiming victory over the West. Meanwhile, at the homes of Afghans who helped the Allied powers, spasmodic knocks on the door and then this.
gunfire on the porch. Frightening, isn't it? What would you do? And Taliban enemies aren't the only ones at risk. Afghan Christians are also in grave danger. My colleague George Thomas obtained an exclusive interview with Christians hiding at a safe house in Kabul. Here's what one of them had to say. Every day I receive a phone call from a private number, and the person warns me that if he sees me again, he will behead me. We are praying for each other that the Lord would put his angels around our house for our protection and safety. Two days earlier, President Biden and other officials attended a solemn ceremony at Dover Air Force Base as the fallen troops from the Kabul airport attack were honorably returned to American soil. But there was one big problem. It looked like the U.S. president had somewhere better to be. According to some of the parents of the fallen, the commander-in-chief kept looking at his watch. Maybe Mr. Biden was checking to see when he might receive word on the 250 Americans left behind in his hasty withdrawal from Afghanistan. Well, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki has yet to explain why the president kept looking at his watch. Fox News contributor Brett Baer explained that Biden may not have been checking his watch at all. He may have been looking at the rosary of his deceased son, Beau. The president apparently wears the rosary on his wrist. Regardless, days earlier, President Biden pledged not to leave Afghanistan until all Americans were out. But then he did the opposite. He left some behind. When the president of the United States is sworn into office, he takes an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And that includes protecting the American people. That is his primary duty. And on this, Joe Biden has failed. And so have our military leaders. They may argue that they were just following the orders of the commander-in-chief when they hastily abandoned Bagram Air Force Base, the best place, by the way, for American and Afghan evacuations. But they and President Biden must be held to account for abruptly leaving Americans and Afghans at risk and for their recklessness, which led to the death of 13 servicemen and women at Kabul Airport. A group of 87 retired U.S. generals are calling on Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley to resign. That would be a good start. Also, Congress should hold hearings to determine what happened, investigating the intelligence received and the decision-making process that led to the hasty withdrawal. Our nation has been humiliated. Accountability and apologies are a must. The future morale of our troops and the restoration of American dignity are at stake. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.